Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. want to be a part of something big. Uh, we want to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Uh, maybe it's a movement of some kind. Maybe it's a group. Maybe it's an, just a long-standing tradition that's been going on for centuries. I mean, people just want to feel connected to something big, and they want to belong to something that's making a difference in the world for good, something that's uh, bringing out the best in them, something that gives them meaning and purpose. And uh, my question is, uh, what's that something for you that you're a part of? What do you find yourself drawn to? What movement, what group, um, what purpose, what meaning do you have? So that's sort of what we're going to look at today as we finish up uh, the book of Acts. Next week, uh, I plan to start a shorter, uh, I hope it's shorter than Acts, um, just a biographical type of uh, study on the life of Moses. So we'll get a little Old Testament action going on. It's going to be great. Looking forward to that, but please be praying for me. I haven't had near the time I thought I would to prepare for that. God's just making me operate by faith here a little bit. Um, but uh, looking forward to it. It's going to be exciting. Biographical sermons are some of my favorite. So, um, to be honest, I'm just gonna, I'm going to be sad to uh, leave the book of Acts. You know, you go through a, a book. Every book we go through, I just there's a new affinity with it. You kind of develop a relationship with the book. It's kind of weird to say, but you do, and you have a, this just a greater appreciation for it and how deep it is, and. Uh, I'm a, I love history, I love geography, I like archaeology, and so uh, Acts is filled with that. There's just you know, not another book like it maybe that has so much of that going on, so I'm going to miss it uh, greatly. But I'm also looking forward to what, what God's got next for us. Um, anyway, uh, verse 16, uh, that's where we're going to start. We're going to read verse 16 through 22. This is the, we'll call it the, the initial interview that Paul has with the Jewish leaders uh, just a few days after arriving in Rome. So, verse 16, When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. And after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began to say to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people... Or the customs of our fathers. Yet I was handed over to the Romans as a prisoner from Jerusalem. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there were no grounds for putting me to death. Uh, When the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. But for this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, since I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. 
And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor has any of the brothers uh, come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For regarding this, this sect, it is, now, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Speaking of Christianity, right? But uh, anyway, much of what we see um, in these final verses of Acts is really, it seems like it's just a, a recapitulation or a summary of everything that's already gone or taken place in Acts. You know, Paul is going to reach out to the Jews first. Some are going to believe, some aren't. There's going to be opposition developing. And then he turns to the Gentiles, and the gospel continues to advance. And he continues to witness to all at the same time. And so, um, uh, three days after his arrival in Rome, Paul gets to work. He invites leading men of the Jews to come to him. He's on house arrest, and so he can't go far. He must actually invite people to come to him. Did you see he mentioned his chains? You can almost picture him when he says these chains. He's, he's, he's holding them up, right? Um, he probably, uh, verse 30, if you go to verse 30, he talks about, he, Paul mentions that he uh, lived two full years in his own rented quarters. And so, He's, he's a prisoner, but it's kind of, it's more like house arrest. You know, it's not the deepest, darkest dungeon. You know, this isn't the Mamertine prison yet. He's in his own rented quarters, and he's on house arrest. He has a guard, you know, probably chained to him on intervals throughout the day. Um, he probably lived in one of the, the many thousands of apartment buildings that were in Rome. Rome was... Uh, really small city at this time, not small, maybe a million people, but, you know, geographically, like the land, the area that it took up, it was small, but they had a lot of people in it in these apartment buildings called Roman Insulae, or Insulae. Uh, these were typically two to five stories high. They had a courtyard, uh, you know, like a fence around in a courtyard. They had some shops on the ground level, and uh, Luke says that Paul paid for this out of his own pocket, or he rented it, and uh, probably with the help of the church there in Rome and some other missionary supporters, and, and while he had a, a signif some significant amount of freedom as a, as a prisoner, he was also chained to a soldier, like I mentioned. Uh, he mentions in the book of Philippians uh, a letter that he wrote during this time, uh, during this uh, imprisonment in Rome, this first imprisonment. Uh, he writes about the Praetorian Guard, you know, the, and they've uncovered all the barracks of the Praetorian Guard. These were uh, pretty elite soldiers, and they were his captive audience, right? <laughs> They're chained to the Apostle Paul. They're going to hear the gospel. <laughs> They're going to be around him while he's writing letters and all of this stuff and making disciples. And so how cool is that? Uh, he has a captive audience, actually. He influenced these soldiers for Christ. He even mentions uh, influencing members of Caesar's household uh, while he's imprisoned here. Uh, so Paul, it's amazing, he, he doesn't see this as some great big obstacle. He's not moaning and groaning, oh no, I've got these chains and I am just can't do anything. And, and No, it's actually he turned the prison, his prison, into a pulpit. I mean, he... 
he saw this not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. It's just a different opportunity. And God was going to use him here as well. He was busy discipling people. He was writing letters. According to the letters, he had many friends. He had many visitors. Remember, he writes to Philemon, and he's discipling Onesimus. And uh, he wrote four prison epistles we know of during this time. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And I think this goes to show us that every circumstance we go through is opportunity for the gospel, right? If, if I'm, I'm healthy, I'm free, I'm traveling, opportunity for the gospel. If I'm stuck in a hospital bed somewhere and, and I can't go anywhere, opportunity for the gospel. It doesn't matter. With God, even obstacles, in quotation marks, right, become opportunities. God's going to use it all if we'll let Him. You know, sometimes I think in our, our restless generation, we are a restless generation, and part of that's due to vehicles. It's amazing. I went up to uh, Terry Peak this week, drove up there in the morning, skied for six hours, came back at night, even in the snow. How amazing is that? You know, you never would have dreamed of doing that 100 years ago. Yeah, it is pretty cool, but part of the, you know, we're so uh, mobile these days, it just kind of makes us restless, and, you know, we feel chained to maybe our work, or we're chained to our homes, and where we are, or whatever we're doing, but Paul, again, he, he learned to see everything, even his chains, as an opportunity to advance the gospel. He said, I might be chained, but the gospel never is. I can still be about God's business. I mean, even if no one else is around, the guy's on his knees praying. You know, he, he, you, can, you can influence with your prayers. It doesn't matter where you are, even if you're in a hospital bed. You can still be a part of what God is doing through his kingdom program. But uh, there was uh, a large Jewish presence in Rome. Historians estimate uh, as many as 50,000 Jews living on the outskirts of the city. I think it was just on the other side of the Tiber River. But uh, Claudius, remember Claudius had removed all of the Jews from Rome in A.D. 50. This is A.D. 60. That's 10 years ago. Uh, that's how Paul, when he was in Corinth, met up with Priscilla and Aquila. These were Jews who had been kicked out of Rome, and they fled to Corinth. That's how he met them. Well, uh, Jews were allowed to return four years later, A.D. 54, and uh, that's six years before Paul arrived. So again, there's a big, there's, there's a ton of Jews uh, back in the city, some of them actually came back as slaves, but um, the Jews are who he invites first because that's Paul's policy. That's Paul's conviction. Paul considers that his duty before God. I mean, every, you know, your Bible, right? This is, this is, this is the Jewish scriptures, right? Twelve disciples, Jewish. Jesus, Jewish, right? Abraham, the promises that we've been grafted into, Jewish, the father of the Jews, right? I mean, this is it's very Jewish. Um, that was Paul's conviction. I'm going to the gospel. I'm taking the gospel to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And uh, the Jews are the ones that, I mean, I would want to reach out to first if I was Paul too. I mean, they had the foundation. They were expecting a Messiah to come. They had the scriptures. They had the scriptural knowledge. These, these guys should have been ripe, you know, for for the gospel, to hear the good news about Jesus, for the, uh, their Messiah. And if Paul could win the Jews, well then, 
they'd be on his team that he'd help they'd help him reach the Gentiles. But if if Paul, think about this too, if Paul goes to the Gentiles first, and, and then uh and then the Jews find out about it, then he's not going to be as welcome in their synagogues, right? So he would actually use that opportunity to reach out to the Jews first. But um this opening interview uh with them is very reminiscent of Paul's speeches that we've read in Acts. It's kind of like an abbreviated version of all those speeches that we went through in these late chapters of, of the book of Acts. And uh, notice, how, notice how Paul identifies with them. Let's kind of go through his, his uh, speech here a little bit. He identifies with them, just like he did when he was arrested at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he calls them brothers. He talks about our fathers, you know, our customs the customs of our fathers you know he talks about my nation you know i didn't i didn't uh, i'm not he's, he actually talks about how he loves his nation he hasn't done anything against their people his people or his nation or his their customs you know but he still says i, I was delivered into the hands of the romans and even though they couldn't find grounds for for putting him to death um uh mainly the reason why they were so adamant, some of the Jews uh, putting him to death, it, it really had no political grounds at all. You know, it was all theological, uh, right? Before all these governors, they're like, Rome just kept washing their hands of Paul. Like, I don't know what to do with you. Like, I could, they could care less about the theological uh, contentions between Paul and and the Jews who didn't accept Jesus. I mean, that's all it was, theological contentions, and Rome didn't want anything to do with it, but at the same time, for political expediency, they weren't just going to release Paul, because if they release Paul, they're going to make the Jewish leaders mad. And if the Jewish leaders get mad, there's going to be a riot. And if there's a riot, well, then the Roman procurator, whoever's in charge, is going to, is going to be iced, man. They're out of there. Caesar's going to kick them out, because that's the one thing you had to maintain in Rome the Roman Empire is a procurator or a governor. It was peace and order. Uh, you know, the, the Pax Romana, Roman peace, right? Better maintain peace or else. You know, it was like a, it was like a sword to your throat type of peace. But uh, anyway, that's, that's why they're doing it. They were um, using Paul as a political pawn. And uh, they refused to deal justly. And that forced him to appeal to Caesar. And so Paul's point, by rehashing all of this for them, is that he's not guilty of anything. And, 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 if I, if, and he says, like, if, if I am guilty of anything, it's being a faithful Jew. Right? I've actually received the Messiah we've been waiting for. Paul is guilty of being a completed Jew, some of the Jews might say today. A messianic Jew, a completed Jew, like uh, he accepted his own Messiah, the Messiah, the, the, the one they were waiting for. He calls it the hope of Israel, referring to the Messiah, the Savior who is going to come, and the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection. And we see here, though, it's, it's interesting, more parallels between Jesus and Paul. Um, Jesus, in Luke, is described as being handed over, delivered into the hands of the Romans. He's also described as not, they said, uh, it, quote, couldn't find any grounds for putting him to death. Couldn't find any reasons for putting him to death. Well, it's interesting. Luke uses almost word for word uh, the same description, to, oh, just the same words to describe Paul. Uh, 
it's just an interesting parallel between Jesus and Paul in these final chapters. And we've seen a lot of parallels like that, but I pointed out to you because I want you to see the, the connection that Luke is making between Jesus and Paul in the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. You see that connection there. But um, it's somewhat surprising, too, that these guys in, in Rome, the Jews in Rome, are unaware of Paul's case, despite all of the zeal that the Jewish leaders had in Jerusalem to kill Paul. And you think they would have sent a letter or something, like, what's, what's going on? Why don't they know about this? Well, I've got a few reasons here. Um, one is that they might not have known because Rome was harsh on accusers who couldn't substantiate their claims. The Jews accused Paul of something like breaking that barrier wall. You remember that? And they couldn't substantiate it. Why? It didn't happen. There were no eyewitnesses. If you get caught lying in court, it's off with your head. You know, so they couldn't substantiate their claims. And they've already failed many times before governors and procurators. And so I think they knew by now, but you know, after Festus and Felix and Agrippa, that to take this before Nero, they're going to fall flat on their face, right? It's not going to hold up in court, and, and they've already wasted Felix and Festus and Agrippa's time. They better not waste Ciro, their Caesar's time. I almost said Ciro for Caesar Nero. Um, you better not waste his time. Okay? You don't do that in the Roman Empire. Uh, another reason is just the long de- delay in communication. I mean, if they were to send a letter from Jerusalem to Rome, it would have been probably after Paul's departure. Like, hey, heads up, Paul's coming. Well, Paul already beat them to the punch, and then right after that, the storms hit. Probably prevented anybody with a letter after Paul leaving from getting to Rome before Paul. And Paul was already in Malta in February and left very, very early in the spring. And then third is that the Jews just don't seem to be well organized in Rome during this time due to the previous expulsion by Claudius, the one who exiled all the, the Jews from Rome. The, the presence in Jewish presence in Rome at this time was described as just a conglomeration of independent synagogues. So they weren't all working together like they did in Jerusalem. But uh, even though they don't know much about Paul, they are familiar with Christianity. They're skeptical of it, uh, as we read, but they want to hear more from Paul because Paul is one of the leading voices in Christianity, and they want to find out what his views are exactly. So uh, they schedule a second meeting with Paul, verse 23 and 24. When they set a day for Paul, uh, people came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, and from morning until evening. How about that? You guys want to hang around from morning until evening today? Discuss the law and the prophets? Some, it says, were being persuaded by the things said by Paul, but others would not believe. So, hey, we've got food. We can do that, right? We've got a fellowship dinner. We'll stick around all day have a big Bible study. Just like them. But that, that's uh, section number two, main heading number two, witnessing to the Jewish leaders. Um, you know what? Just write Bible study with the Jewish leaders. That's what I should have put there for a blank. 
It's an all-day Bible study. A large number of Jews come to Paul. They spend an entire day just searching the Scriptures, perusing the Scriptures, um, seeing what the law and the prophets have to say about Jesus. And is Jesus the predicted Messiah? Is He the Savior they were waiting for? And uh, either His apartment is really crammed, or they, they gathered in the courtyard um, of that, their, their, their apartment building. But Paul is described, look at this again, we've seen this throughout Acts, explaining, testifying, and persuading them that Jesus is the Messiah. Like three descriptives of a, of a witness, a good witness, right? Explaining, testifying, and persuading. And he's persuading from the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Uh, and it, he's explaining to them how through faith in Jesus, sinners can be restored to the kingdom of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be restored to the kingdom of God. I mean, that from the beginning of Genesis, right? It was about God's kingdom. This is the grand meta-narrative of Scripture, the kingdom of God. In the beginning, what did, what did, what did God say to Adam? exercise dominion over the earth, right? He was to be a ruling agent for God's kingdom on the earth. It was lost, right? Satan fell, and, and he, he convinced Adam and Eve to rebel against God's kingdom. He lo- they lost power. It was given to Satan. And um, Jesus comes along, and he's the Adam who, who, who never failed, He's the righteous Adam who, when tempted by Satan in the wilderness, did not fall. Jesus was perfect, and through his death and burial and resurrection, he restored that authority that God gave man in the beginning, in a sense. And so now, through faith in Jesus, we can be restored to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says in Revelation, you'll be faithful, you'll believe in him, you are going to reign and rule with him in the millennial kingdom, in the new heaven, the new earth. It's all a big, grand narrative story about the kingdom of God and the gospel central to that, right? So how cool is that? Through what Jesus did, we can be restored to the kingdom of God. Implying what? If you don't place your faith in what Jesus Christ did, you're not restored to the kingdom of God. And that's a scary thing. So I'd encourage you to trust in Jesus today if you have not. But this is a powerful description of what it looks like to witness for Jesus Christ. And one of the things I appreciate about, about this account, and I think you do too, or you will, is, that, is just the honest, irenic approach to the Scriptures, right? The peaceable approach to the Scriptures. They're just they're sitting around all day long like a bunch of Bereans from Acts 17.11 and just seeing what the Scriptures have to say. Paul's teaching... And they're, and, and they're going through the scriptures with him, and they're seeing if what Paul's saying is lining up with what God's word says. God's word is their standard. And I just, I love that picture, just sitting around with Bibles open all day long. It's a big Bible study. But anyway, as usual, some, some people believe, it says, some people don't. And then some are starting to become hostile, I think. And that's why uh, Paul goes into this prophetic warning of Isaiah in verse uh, 25 and 26 through 27. Uh, let's read that. Uh, see, that the pattern in the book of Acts has been the gospels preached to the Jews, a remnant believes, but a majority rejects it. 
of the Jews. And then after that, the Lord turns from the Jews to focus on the Gentiles, and then the non-believing Jews start to persecute the church. Paul sees that pattern starting to repeat itself here in Rome. And so this is the prophetic warning he gives from Isaiah, verse 25. When they disagreed with one another, one another they began leaving after Paul said one parting statement. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah, the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing and will not perceive. For the hearts of this people have become insensitive, and with their ears they hardly hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they also will listen. So, by quoting Isaiah here, Paul is seeking to turn these guys back who have rejected Jesus. It's kind of like a, a challenge. It's like a mocking, baiting challenge to them, right? I mean, you've seen some of these uh, sports movies and stories where it's like, ah, you'll never win. You know, what? That's, that's all that person needed to hear to get in gear and win. You know, it's like, that's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to turn them back. You guys, you guys are acting just like your fathers. You know, and, and he says, this is your Messiah, guys. This is your God, your scriptures, your promises. But the Gentiles are going to enjoy the blessing place of God in your place if you don't listen and believe. Right, So it's like, ooh, that should make them jealous, right? Gentiles, I'm not like my fathers. I'm not like our fathers. You know, remember that, 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 that statement that Jesus made in the Gospels? I think it was in Matthew 23. He's like, you guys, you, guys, you, know, you guys say you're not like your fathers. You adorn the tombs of the prophets, and yet you kill the prophets. Right, So they didn't want to be like their fathers who were deaf and spiritually dull. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, he, he warned them of growing spiritually dull and insensitive to God's word. Even though they have ears, even though they have eyes, he's saying, look, they're not working. You're not seeing who Jesus really is. You're not listening to what God has to say about his son. They're spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, unperceptive to God's revelation in Christ. Um, where did we see this first happen in the, in the book of Acts? Maybe, maybe, I don't know, it was the first instant, but let's think, let's think Acts chapter 13. Remember when we talked about this? It was Paul and Barnabas, first missionary journey, first island they go to. They run into a guy named Bar-Jesus. What a Bar-Jesus means, son of Jesus. He's a Jew. He rejects Jesus, and what happens to him? He's blinded, right? And then the Roman governor guy, Sergius Paulus, he believes. And guess what's quoted? Isaiah, talking about Jesus being a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So that, that first instance with Bar-Jesus and Sergius Paulus was just a small taste of basically what Paul's ministry was going to be like. And, and still there, it's still like that today, right? The Jews are, are hard and they're, they're blind to the gospel. They're so hard. They're so hard to reach the Jewish people today. And it's typically churches, right? Made up of Gentiles that 
believe. Any, any Jews here? I don't see a single hand, you know? It's just the way it is. That's a theological phenomenon that, well, it's probably because we don't have many Jews in Shadron, I know. But it's, it's a theological phenomenon that Paul uh, breaks down in Romans 9 through 11. But let's look here. Look at that, that word insensitive that Paul uses in verse 27 could be translated fat or thick. This people's, the hearts of this people have become fat. The hearts of this people have become thick. Right? So we talk about people becoming thick-headed, right? And when you say someone's thick-headed, that means nothing's penetrating, right? Uh, well, to the Jew, the heart was a combination of the mind. So I'm talking about people being thick-headed, like we have knowledge in our heads but not in our hearts. Well, to the Jew, the heart was the mind and the will and the heart. I mean, it's, it was all one thing to them. The heart was everything internal. And so when he's saying you have thick, you have thick hearts, it's like it's not, it's not penetrating. Your hearts, you have a thick-hearted, right? We would call it thick-headed. But um, one Jewish commentator I read said, where there's two Jews, there's three opinions. And uh, that's the case here. They're just divided over Jesus. There's a few who believe. There's some who don't. And then some start becoming hostile. But the remnant who believes... The, the, the small number of Jews who believe reminds us of that theological phenomenon that Paul deals with at length in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, while the majority of Jews don't believe, uh, Paul explains in those chapters that that did not ultimately wreck God's plan. Okay, It only opened the door further to the Gentiles and furthered ministry to the Jews. So actually, by pronouncing this warning to the Jews and reaching out to Gentiles, Paul was not at all being anti-Semitic. Right? He was not being anti-Jewish. He was not saying that God is done with the Jews for good, as if this was some final categorical rejection of the Jewish people. Some will interpret this passage that way. Is God done with the Jews? Paul says in Romans 9 through 11, no, absolutely not. May it never be, you know, so he's not done with them. And Paul even says in chapter 11 of Romans that through his ministry to the Gentiles, he's seeking to win more Jews for Christ. So that's part of his motivation to the Jews is to win more, or to the Gentiles, is to win more Jews. I mean, it's just, it's the opposite of saying that this is anti-Semitic. So Paul's motivation in doing this is to win more Jews and uh, hopefully make the Jews jealous that they might see the Gentiles enjoying the blessing place of God and enjoying some of the the spiritual uh, uh, delights of the Abrahamic promise he mentions in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, the, the promises of God, the, the spiritual blessings of forgiveness of sin, the hope of the resurrection, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And they would see that the Gentiles who've believed in Christ have a spiritual life that they don't, and they would want that. That's the idea here. Uh, but before we, we move on, something worth noting is the, is the way Paul describes Isaiah as inspired by the Holy Spirit. I cannot just skip this. Did you catch that? 
verse 25, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet. Oh wait, you're telling me that it wasn't just Isaiah that wrote this? Right? It was the Holy Spirit through Isaiah. We call that the doctrine of inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Bible to write what they write. We call it a dual authorship. So, um, the Holy Spirit inspired what they wrote, yet without mindless dictation. You know, like it's not like the Holy Spirit took over and they just didn't know what they were doing. No, they wrote what they were writing with, with their own personality, with their style, with their search situation, their circumstances in life. But the Holy Spirit is the one who led it and guided it. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's how we have the scriptures, right? The canon, right? There's certain books that just stand out that we know are, are written from the Holy Spirit. I mean, this, the, the Bible just stands out. Um, but anyway, let's move on. Luke ends the book with a summary statement about Paul's ministry at Rome. Uh, it's Paul's continued ministry to all, verse 30 and 31, the last two verses of our study in Acts. I'm sad. Uh, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented lodging and welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So that's it. That's the end. Kind of weird, huh? It's kind of an open ending, don't you think? Like, what happened? We just got to Rome. It's getting exciting. He's going to go before Caesar and... Oh, that's it, right? I mean, what happened? Did, how did how did the trial turn out? I mean, did Nero off his head? I mean, I mean, was he released? Was he put to death? Luke doesn't say. And uh, I don't think he meant to say what happened to Paul. He obviously didn't, because ultimately, this book isn't about Paul, right? This is not a biography. It includes Paul to a great extent, but this is about something greater than Paul. It's about the birth of the new covenant community that we call the church, and it's about the rise and the spread of the gospel to all nations. That's what it's about. It's the continued acts of Jesus, not the continued acts of Paul. It's the acts of Jesus, and it's... I mean, we, we've reached the point where it's, it's obvious that God has kept His promise. He's seen this thing through. This, this, this little band of believers in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 that were fearful and timid have now, in just 30 years, just under 30 years, penetrated the entire biblical world and social strata. From Nero to the, to the lame person on the sidewalk in Jerusalem. I mean, they have filled the entire world in 30 years with the gospel. That's pretty neat. And, and Luke ends on the note that, like, hey, ministry kept going. Why? Because God's behind it. It's pretty amazing. Uh, let's ask, though, like, do we know what happened to Paul? Because you guys want to know, right? What happened to Paul? Well, I think Luke gives us a hint here. He says with an optimistic tone. These verses are very optimistic. Paul stayed two years there preaching unhindered as to suggest, yes, he was released after 
two years. That's how long this imprisonment was, this first one, just two years. He preached there unhindered, and uh, the expectation of release, of being released, is evident here and in Paul's prison epistles that he wrote during this, this period, those four that we talked about. Um, his accusers probably never came. They never made the journey to Rome, and uh, the case was dismissed. And you have to imagine that Luke's writings, all of his documents that he's been recording in the book of Luke's and the book of Acts, this all um, basically added to Paul's defense. Um, but uh, Jesus said, hey, in chapter 23, 11, he was going to witness at Rome. So you can, we, can, we can imagine he did. We can believe that he did actually stand before Nero. Um, there's other ancient Christian sources that suggest he did. He did give a defense while he was there. But uh, remember how in Romans 15, 24, Paul mentioned um, his desire to visit Spain. Uh, he actually wants to use Rome as a launch pad to go to Spain. He wants just to pass by Rome. And uh, in Rome, he, he wrote to Philemon, who lives in Colossae over in Turkey, in western Turkey, uh, that he says to prepare lodging for him. So while Paul's in, in prison here in Rome, he tells Philemon to prepare a lodging for me, suggesting he's going to get out and he's going to go back to Colossae. Uh, he talked to the, Macedon or, sorry, the Macedonians, Philipp Philippi. He said, hey, I'm coming to you soon. I'm coming to you shortly. So just more evidence that he uh, um, was released. We have every indication from Scripture and from early Christian sources. Obviously, one is more trustworthy than the other. But to believe Paul, uh, Paul did both. He did make it to Spain, and he did enjoy another brief period of ministry strengthening the churches in the central Mediterranean region. Actually, we're not going to look at every citation, but you can see in your notes, I have an early writer named Clement. Uh, he states in a letter written at the end of the first century that Paul served as a herald in both the East and the West, and he received the noble reputation for his faith. He taught righteousness to the whole world and came to the limits of the West. The limits of the West to him would be Spain, right? Bearing his witness before the rulers, and so he was set free from this world and transported up to the holy place, having become the greatest example of endurance. I hope he means outside of Christ. But uh, speaking of Paul's release and later martyrdom, a man named Eusebius writes, After defending himself, the apostle was again sent on the ministry of preaching, and coming a second time to the same city, talking about Rome, suffered martyrdom under Nero, and he writes that Paul's martyrdom was not accomplished during the sojourn in Rome, which Luke describes. Which sojourn is that? The one we've witnessed in Acts. So, uh, from details in his prison letters, we see he anticipated ministry to Philippi, Colossae. Um, uh, he went to Miletus. He left Trophimus sick at Miletus once. That meant he went through that same area again. Um, that did not happen in the book of Acts. He didn't leave Trophimus sick there. On his third journey, uh, he wintered one time at Nicopolis in western Greece. Um, he also left Titus in Crete, and we didn't see that in the book of Acts. Titus wasn't on the ship with him. But I imagine that when they stopped in Crete on their way to Rome, Paul saw how disorganized these churches were in Crete, and he later sends Titus there. He goes there with Titus and leaves him there. So there's just, I just, I mentioned these things, they're probably boring to some of you, I, I love it, I love studying this, but um, I think 
it's just important so you understand the New Testament letters and what you're reading there. What, what's this imprisonment here and this imprisonment there? Why is he so upbeat in, in Philippians about being released? And why is he so you know, expecting to meet the Lord Jesus any day now in 2 Timothy? Right? Which is his last letter that he wrote uh, on the second imprisonment. There's, just, there's travel details in the New Testament letters that, that don't harmonize with his travel in Acts, insisting that, uh, that there was more travel beyond this imprisonment. Now, if we were to, to provide a brief summary for his final years, uh, I'm not going to reconstruct his travels, but I would say that Paul was released in A.D. 62 and resumed missionary travels, a fourth missionary journey, maybe a fifth to Spain. In, in A.D. 64, which is two years later, that's when Nero burns Rome. He burns down his own city, because he wants to create, uh, you know, he wants to rebuild it basically and glorify himself through it. But uh, they blame this great fire of Rome on the Christians. Uh, even though he started, he blames it on the Christians, at least that's the story. And this is when the great, cruel persecution of Christians begins. And they're thrown before the beasts in the Circus Maximus. Right? The Colosseum wasn't built for a few more years. But Christians are being torn by beasts. Uh, just for entertainment, and they're being they're being strung up on light poles and lit on fire to light the streets. Let's light the streets with Christians. And so uh, Paul is rearrested in connection with that persecution. He's incarcerated then in a dark Mamertine prison, which is basically like a well, um, uh, just a really dark, cold, miserable place. And it's here that he writes Second Timothy about having finished his race. He finished his race, and he's expecting to depart and be with the Lord Jesus any day. And both he and Peter give their lives for Christ before Nero dies in June 9th of A.D. 68. So, at least that's the, pretty much the consensus, consensus A.D. 68. Uh, persecution subsided after uh, Nero died, and so it's just before he died, probably. But he was beheaded. Paul lost his head with a sword and was buried on the Ostian Way outside of Rome, on the southwest side of Rome as it goes out to Ostia, a little village on the coast. But uh, that's Paul's life. That's it. He is a great example, isn't he, of endurance. In fact, outside of Jesus, I don't know if there's anyone else who was so... So surrendered to God. There's just never there's never been anybody like him, as far as I know. Gave his life for Christ, and he says he, he finished his race well. That needs to be our prayer. I know a guy who used to end his prayers that way every day. Lord help me to finish my race well. That raises the question, though, how do we finish well? How do we finish well? Well, Paul wrote in Corinthians, he said, I I discipline my body. He compared himself to being in the games, you know, the Corinthian games or Athenian games, or the, sorry, the Olympic games. Um, in Philippians, he talked about pressing on. I'm going to press on. I'm going to forget what's behind and what I've done in the past, and I'm just looking to the future. I'm looking towards, towards heaven. I'm looking towards, you know, glorifying my Lord with my life. I can't live today on the victories of yesterday. Every day is a battle, and I'm disciplined in my body, and I'm running that race. Paul kept his focus on the mission, the heavenly calling that he had been given by God. 
he, 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 didn't, he didn't get out of his lane. You know what I mean? Like, this is what God has called me to, and I'm going to do it until the day I die. And he gave his life for it. And it's just an amazing testimony that he had, staying focused on the goal, on the finish line, and on what really matters most. Um, in the introduction, I, I mentioned people's longing to be part of something big. Right? We want to be a part of a group, we want to be a part of a tradition or a movement, something that's going to give us lasting meaning, something that's going to bring us purpose, right? You guys all want that. That's probably part of the reason you're here. Right? You want to be a part of something that, that, that does good in the world, something that does good in you, that brings out the best in you, and, and influences the world for good. And even the Greek philosopher Aristotle, 4 BC, many, and many modern secular psychologists today understand this. That meaning in life will make you happier than possessions and pleasures ever will. People, are, people realize that. They've realized it for a long time. Meaning in life, you need that more than possessions and pleasures. And they might suggest, you know, the secular world might suggest you create meaning in your life through various things like you got to get a hobby you know get some meaning in your life get a hobby have some relationships start some relationships set some goals develop new strengths and without hesitation i would submit yeah they're they're on the wrong now they're on the right track but they're not gonna find you're not gonna find real lasting meaning and purpose that your soul longs for without god and being being a part of what god is doing if you really want meaning, you don't have to create it. You have to join in what God is doing already and what he's calling you to. Be a part of his kingdom and his kingdom's mission. And if, I mean, think about this. If what Acts really says is true, and if what Jesus really did is true, that through his sacrifice on the cross, men can be forgiven of their sins, have the indwelling uh, Holy Spirit be born again, have everlasting life with God. I mean, what greater news is there that you could give the world? Like, what greater movement could you be a part of than the church? I, there's, there's nothing out there. Everything else pales, pales in comparison to that. There's, there's no greater meaning, no greater purpose than being a part of what God is doing in His kingdom program. So you're wondering, what should I do with my life? First, seek the kingdom of God. And the rest will be given to you, right? First, seek the kingdom of God. Seek your heavenly calling. We're his ambassadors. We're the kingdom of heaven's ambassadors. And, and we admonish every man to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the most foundational, fundamental calling that we have. The only question is remaining is, will we accept it? Will we accept our heavenly calling to make disciples? If I'm doing everything else that I can do, but I'm not doing that, I've missed it. And I'm going to regret it in eternity because I didn't finish my race well. Will we continue what the apostles handed down to us? That's why I think Luke ends this so just open. Oh, it's such an open ending, right? It's awkward. What in the world's going on here? Well, I think Luke intended this to, to, to basically be, basically say, 
This is just the beginning. Right? Which, what we've read in Acts is just the beginning. The mission continues. It continues with you and me. We're to keep on advancing the gospel with confidence, knowing that the Lord is with us always. Jude says the faith has once for all been handed down to the saints. Do you know you're a saint in Christ? You might not feel like it at times. We're running the race. The apostles handed off the faith to the saints in the first generation. That generation passed it on to the next, and they passed it on to the next, and they passed it on to the next. 2 Timothy 2.2, pass on the, the gospel teaching to faithful men who can teach others. Well, guess what? The gospel's come to us. We have the baton. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to pass it on? Are we going to ignore it? That's the question. And I think Luke's optimistic tone at the end of the book of Acts is keep advancing the gospel with confidence because God is with you always. He's the one who's been driving this mission, right? Can't stop it. But you can be a part of it. You can join it. There's a group of churches that uh, call themselves Acts 29 churches. We know there's no Acts 29, right? The point is, and I went to one of these churches when I was in Lubbock, Texas. Um, Pretty good church. Guess what they were preaching through? Acts. But... I think the, the meaning behind their name is essentially saying, look, we, Acts 29, we're, we're living Acts 29. Acts 29 is still being written. What is it going to have to say about us? Did we continue to advance the gospel? That's my prayer as we finish this book that we would never forget that we're part of something big. We're part of this legacy. And we keep passing on what the, gospel, what the apostles handed down to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much just for uh, the book of Acts that we've been able to enjoy. Um, I'm thankful for your people here who love your word and, and want to spend time in it. Um, Lord, don't let our hearts ever grow cold and fat and thick so that your word can't penetrate our hearts. I pray that no one would leave here today without having considered and accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and without having made it their goal in life to finish the race well and to live for what really matters. We're thankful for the purpose and the meaning that you've given us in Christ and in this mission. And Lord, give us the grace we need to pass off uh, this baton well to the next generation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.